Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Bethany Hamilton. Bethany Hamilton was 13 years old uh, when she was surfing off the coast of Hawaii. Uh, She was there with two friends, her one friend, Alana, who was also 13, and uh, an older friend, a gentleman who was chaperoning them named Jeff, who was 52. That's when all of a sudden her life changed. Let me read to you her exact words. There wasn't even a ripple. I was lying on a board and a shark kind of came out of nowhere. I caught something out of the corner of my eye, but I didn't think anything of it. And you know how when you eat steak, you kind of have to rip it because it's kind of tough? The shark jerked me like that, but he never pulled me under. It was all red in the water, and then I was like, I got attacked by a shark. Jeff said she never screamed. She just calmly said, shark. From the loss of her arm to the size of the bite in the board, they estimated it was a 15-foot, one-ton tiger shark that had attacked her. Here's where I begin with that true story. There is a shark in the water in your life. There's a fin right next to you. There's danger nearby. It wants to devour you. And here's the other thing. It might not even make a ripple. It might not make a sound. In fact, you might not even know about the damage until it's over. It can gut you, and the person right next to you might not even realize you're being attacked. There won't even be a ripple. David Platt describes the threat I'm referring to in this way. Our enemy in this spiritual war is formidable. He is a lion looking to devour. The stakes in the spiritual war are eternal. Heaven and hell hang in the balance with this war. And the scope of this spiritual war is universal. It is being waged in every nation, among every people, in every language, and in every life. Some of us this morning are facing a spiritual battle right now. Some of you are facing a spiritual battle uh, in your marriage. Some of you are facing a spiritual battle with your kids and the enemy is attacking one of your kids. Some of you are facing a spiritual battle with some habitual sin that you can't seem to stop and you feel defeated by it. We need to be reminded how our enemy works. There are recognizable patterns we are told to look out for. The Bible calls them schemes. We'll see three of these schemes in our text today as we look at Matthew chapter 4. This contains the famous story of the temptation of Jesus Christ. There are three temptations and therefore three parts to the message today. They are as follows. The temptation for self-gratification, the temptation for self-protection, and finally, the temptation for self-exaltation. Self-gratification, self-protection, self-exaltation. Let me just acknowledge that I've been greatly helped in my study of this passage from a book written by Russell Moore called Tempted and Tried. He says, here the scriptures identify for us the universal strategies of temptation. You will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You will be tempted with consumption, security, and status. 
you will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. And at the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. I want to come back to that fatherhood theme later, but notice what he says. These three temptations are paradigmatic. They are a model. They are a parallel that we can apply to our own spiritual lives and learn to follow the Lord Jesus and thus have victory through his power. That's what we're going to learn today. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we only have a few moments together this morning, but you can do much. So help me and help us. Last time we were together, we were reminded that you call us to repent more deeply. I pray that we would continue to do so today as we are reminded of the areas of temptation in our own hearts and lives, areas where we need to be on guard, areas where we want to please and honor and glorify you more, our Lord and our King. For your glory we pray. Amen. Remember where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, the Son of God, came to the Jordan River, was baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Chapter 4 picks it up right there immediately. It says this in chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice the contrast. Last week, we saw spirit baptism, and in this passage, we see spiritual battle. Last week, we heard a voice from heaven. This week, we hear a voice from hell. Last week, we heard great comfort. This week, we have great conflict. Last week, we had water. This week, we have desert. In the scriptures, the desert or the wilderness was the place of testing for the children of God. All followers of Jesus are familiar with this place. If anybody tells you the Christian life doesn't involve times in the desert, they're selling you snake oil. They are offering you a counterfeit. True Christianity is a fight. It is a battle. It has been that way since its inception. There is a war between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. Many times, our times in the desert involve a measure of fear, fear of abandonment. Uh, Secular psychologists tell us that our basic anxieties as human beings stem from this fear, this fear of abandonment. I cannot imagine a scene that feels more like desertion and abandonment than starving in the desert alone. Secondly, notice not only the setting, but the scriptures here just sort of matter of factly recognize the existence of an evil spiritual being uh, called the devil or the diabolos. Was he an angel of light, as the scriptures say he appears? Was he invisible? Or was there some sort of physical manifestation? We don't know. But right away, some people see this and they go, the devil, really? You believe me to expect, you, believe, you, you expect me to believe in the devil in our day and age? And the answer is yes. And he would like you to think he's just a fable. The greatest trick he ever pulled was to convince the Western world he doesn't exist. He doesn't want you looking for him while he swims right up to you in the water. So let me make an important point right up front, and it's this. You have an enemy in the spiritual realm. Can we say that together? 
You have an enemy in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6.12 is clear. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Last week we talked about that series, The Lord of the Rings, and we talked about how there was this coming king. There's another scene in that series where the king, Aragorn, is trying to convince his friend Theoden to go to war against their evil enemy, Saruman. And they're going back and forth, and, and uh, Theoden is resistant, and he's trying to get him to go out there and fight, and Theoden says this, I will not risk open war. But Aragorn says, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Friends, it's like that. You have an enemy whether you acknowledge him or not. Now, I'm not saying you need to be afraid, but I am saying you need to be on guard. Russell Moore says it well. He says, you're on the verge of wrecking your life, especially if you don't know it. In that book, he uses this illustration of cows being led to the slaughter, and, and I, I want to share it with you with apologies in advance because it is a bit gruesome. He writes this. For a long time, cattle workers would forcefully push and prod cows into the slaughterhouse. For good reason, the cows would resist, and the whole operation uh, would be extremely difficult to carry out until one specific scientist came along and said, no, 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 the way to slaughter cows is to make them feel like everything is great as they enter into the slaughterhouse. Keep the scenery the same as it is in the most peaceful moments of the cow's life. The scientists began to experiment, not with prodding cows off of a truck, but by leading them quietly onto a ramp where they would walk through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device designed to mimic a mother's nuzzling touch. Then the cattle continued down the ramp onto a smoothly curbing path, no sudden turns, a path designed to give the cows a sense that they're going home. And as they mosey along the path, they don't even notice when their hooves are no longer touching the ground. A conveyor belt slowly, gradually lifts them upward, and then, in the twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike right between their eyes. They're transitioned from livestock to meat, and they were never even aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. Friends, you have an enemy. You need to be on guard, and you're on the verge of wrecking your life, especially if you don't know it. I think there's two dangers or two extremes to, to avoid when it comes to talking about the spiritual realm. Uh, there's a kind of fanaticism, a kind of overestimation of Satan's power where uh, we see the devil almost under every bush. But then there's another extreme, not so much of overestimation, but of underestimation where we don't necessarily take into account his existence. And through modernism or through rationalism, what we say is, if I can't see it with my own eyes, then it's not real. Both of those extremes are problematic. The devil is like that lizard who lives in the Midwest, which has two strategies. When it comes upon its predators, it either puffs itself out to look bigger than it is, or it plays dead to look like it's no threat to you at all. So here's the devil. He comes on the scene. He enters into the desert with Jesus, and here's what happens next in our story. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
Notice, first of all, in this first temptation, what the enemy does is he calls into question the word of God. Do you remember what the voice from heaven said in chapter 3 about the son? This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Right here in this first temptation, immediately the devil comes, and throughout these three temptations, we're going to see that he questions every single word of the father's benediction. If you are the son, he begins with this question about his identity. The reason I'm pointing that out is because the same thing happens to us. All temptation begins with that question. Who are you? Who are you? Satan wants us to believe some sort of illusion about ourselves. And the enemy doesn't care if it's grandiosity, if I think more highly of myself than I ought to think, or if it's self-loathing and I think more lowly of myself than I ought to think. Any skewed identity will work as long as my identity is not grounded in the love of my heavenly Father. Before I fall for temptation, I must begin to see myself with an arrogance, thinking this doesn't apply to me. I'm the exception. I am above the law. Or I must see myself with a hatred, a self-loathing, and think, you know what? I'm never going to be able to win this victory. What's the use in trying? Both of those two extremes, the devil can play with. So here, we must remember that we are more than just our earthly appetites. We are more than just our desires. We are children of the king. We are children of our heavenly father. That is our identity. So Jesus is hungry. The enemy comes and questions all of this. And the first temptation is obvious. It is the temptation of self-gratification. The temptation of self-gratification. This kind of temptation is all about consumption. And it's not just about the consumption of food. This can apply to so many different areas. It's the consumption of anything. In our modern American culture, there are endless marketing executives and whole companies and consultants that are employed simply for the reason of stoking our appetites endlessly towards self-gratification. Now, let me clarify. Not every appetite we have is evil. We have desires, desires that are created by God as long as they are met at the right time and in the right place and for the right purpose. So for example, you desire food, that is good, but then Satan takes that which is good and he tempts us towards an undisciplined kind of overeating and a lack of physical exertion or exercise. You desire sleep and then he tempts you towards apathy and laziness and you become, you know, you're late everywhere you go now. Uh, you desire sex, but then he tempts you towards lust or pornography or adultery, and, and you're always clearing out your, your browser and, and, and clearing out the cash so that no one finds out your little habit. He tempts you to fulfill God-given desires apart from God's given provisions. This is the same thing that happens throughout the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning, no sooner had they taken the fruit into their stomach that everything had changed. It changed between them, between them and God, them and the world, everything. And if they could have that moment back, they would gladly take it back, but they couldn't. It was too late. And they realized afterward, no, this doesn't satisfy. We see this again in the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember Esau selling his birthright because he's hungry for a bowl of soup. But then as soon as that soup begins digesting in his stomach, he's weeping to have the decision back filled with regret. What have I done? I just traded everything for an appetite. 
How foolish. We see this in Judas. It was Judas's greed for more and more money that caused him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then that same money was used as the means by which a field is bought where he hangs himself to death there. And so here's the thing over and over and over we see in Scripture. The principle is this. Self-gratification becomes the impetus for self-destruction. Self-gratification becomes the impetus for self-destruction. And the root of the problem here is I am trying to satisfy some kind of spiritual hunger I have with physical means. But it doesn't work. This is why as soon as I reach one level of achievement in my life, instead of being grateful and content with that, I now chalk that level up as the new normal and just expect things to be this way from now on as kind of the new baseline. And then over time, I kind of get tired of that, I get bored with that, and I become discontent, and then the enemy comes and tempts me with hunger for the next thing, and the cycle starts all over again. Now, what's the solution to this endless abyss? Jesus leads the way. Verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice Jesus quotes here in all three of these passages, really, uh, from Deuteronomy, a time when the children of God were in the wilderness. And in those days, if you recall, they were daily dependent upon God for their provision of food. This is what Jesus the Son chooses to do also as the new and greater Israel. He will depend on his Father. He will not trust in his appetites as the reliable guide in his life. He will trust in his Father as the reliable guide in his life. And Jesus knew if from time to time that means I have to curb this appetite, I know there is a table on the other side of death. There is a bountiful feast that my Father is preparing for me, and that is ultimately what will satisfy me. We live in a culture that is surrounded by temptations for self-indulgence and appetites to fill them with earthly means. C.S. Lewis wrote in his Narnia series, uh, about this land that was under the curse of the white witch. And if you recall, uh, the, the, the refrain in that series is, uh, here in Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. Remember that? I was thinking about that phrase this week, and I thought, you know, here in America, it's always Mardi Gras and never Lent. <laughs> it's always the time of indulgence. It's always the time of self-consumption, self-gratification. And this is how we as the children of God have this very unique opportunity to show those around us what it means to live not by bread alone, but to, to trust in the all-satisfying, all-sufficient goodness of our Father, which tastes better than any bread this world has to offer. This is what Jesus did. He did not tell his Father how his desires should be satiated. Instead, he trusted his Father to fulfill those desires in his way according to his word. Notice Jesus quotes the word of God. This is important for you to notice because when it comes to this spiritual war, there are spiritual weapons. You know, some of you today, you hear the messages about, you know, warfare and fighting. And you're like, hey, all right, I'm from Jersey. Did you say fight? Let's fight. Like, I got this. Let's, you know, let's stand. Let's do it. You want to dance? Let's do this. These are spiritual wars. There's spiritual weapons. Earthly weapons will not suit you in this fight. This fight is not about willpower. This fight is spiritual. 
So let me give you a couple practical examples of how to wield the sword of the Spirit in some areas. I'll be honest, for me, lately, I've been prone to overindulge with food. So this is something that I'm currently battling, and when I feel that temptation coming on, I take out the sword of the Spirit, and I remember the words from Proverbs chapter 23. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. (laughs) This reminds me, this is serious business. I want to be in good health for my family and for for my ministry. And so for the glory of God, I I put the fork down. I have to go back to the word of God over and over and over again for his wisdom here. There is power in the scriptures. Maybe that's not your battle, though. Maybe you can't relate to that at all. But maybe you're like a friend of mine who struggles with envy, and she, she bears this jealousy that she just can't quite seem to shake. Ladies, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're here and you, you work full-time outside the home and you also have these, these kids that every single night you're taking care of your family and, and, and then after you're totally exhausted, then you open up your, your social media app and you see all these other friends of yours with these beautiful pictures and these beautiful vacations and you're looking at their highlight reel and you're comparing and contrasting your life and you're going, man, I must be missing out and you're overcome with jealousy and you're overcome with envy in that moment. But what if instead of taking the bait from the enemy, you pulled out the sword of the Spirit and you remembered what it says in Proverbs chapter 14? A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. True peace doesn't come by comparing myself to others. It comes by finding my satisfaction in Jesus, not things. It comes by meditating on him This is what gives life to my body. Those are just some examples. But whatever your struggle is, let me encourage you to search the word of God and be ready with your sword so that you might be able to fight in your own spiritual battle and take back the ground the enemy has taken in your life. Temptation number two. Verse five says, after this, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, He said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Did you know the devil knows the Bible? That's Psalm 91. This temptation is probably the most difficult for us to understand. I know what it's like to be tempted towards self-gratification and want more bread. I do not currently have the temptation to stand at a very high place on some building or you know, up on something really and, and hoist myself off the side. What in the world is this temptation all about? If you have that temptation, you are suicidal. You need professional help. I'm not kidding. But this was no normal tower. Satan says in the, in the Gospel of Luke, throw yourself down from here. This was the temple, the place of God's visible demonstration of his presence and of of his protection. This temptation is not about jumping. This temptation is about presumption. It's about manipulating God's promises and twisting them all around so that I can eliminate any uncertainty in my life. It's not just enough to live a life of faith. I'd prefer to live a life where I can perfectly predict the future with no risk at all. Instead of trusting God, I want to be like God. I want to use God for my own purposes so that I can be the one in control, not him. Why? Because I'd rather be safe. I'd rather be protected rather than trust. What is this? This is the temptation for self-protection. We wish there could be a guarantee 
We would like to know the end before we start. Thank you very much. We don't just want knowledge. We want unlimited knowledge. We'd rather that than have to watch and pray and fast and trust and, you know, depend on our Father. We want to be able to force God to act when we want him to act. But here's the truth about Christianity and the truth about following Jesus. Christianity is not a magic formula. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. This is, we don't believe in superstitions, although some try to smuggle this into the walls of the church. I remember hearing about this particular guy who was trying to sell his house, and, and he said, I, you know, I just need to bury a statue of St. Joseph in the front yard, and then God, Really? You got a chapter and verse for that? And this other lady who had lost her keys, and she said, you know, whenever I lose things, I just pray to St. Anthony. Tony, Tony, if you're around, there are keys to be found. (laughs) Really? That's not Christianity. That's magic. We don't pray to anyone but God. And we trust him. We don't manipulate him. This is how Jesus responds to this temptation. Verse 7. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The context of this quotation, again, is from Deuteronomy. The children of God were wandering in the wilderness. and They were upset with God about a lack of water. And the people wanted a sign from God that he was with them. Now let me just strike that last sentence. The people wanted another sign from God that he was with them. He had already given them 10 plagues. He had already parted the Red Sea. He had already caused manna to fall supernaturally down from heaven, but that was not enough. And God became angry. In fact, Psalm chapter 95 describes God's response. He says, your fathers, I'll put it up here on the screen, your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work, See, here's the problem with this demand. It's absurd. God has been so good to us. He has already given us so many signs. Do we really think one more sign is going to satisfy us and cause us to trust him? We want to know the future with no risk whatsoever. And I want these things so that I don't have to depend on God. I don't want to walk by faith. I want to walk by sight. I don't want to give up control. I want to be in control. I don't want to wait. I want God to be at my beck and call. Yes, I believe God has power, but I would appreciate it if he would give me the power of attorney. That's not faith. It's presumption. There's a big difference. It just doesn't work that way. Instead, God calls us to live a life of trust and daily dependence and revere him as God and say, God, your will be done. Help me to accept what you have for me and I'll believe in you and I'll trust in you and I'll say you're good no matter what. That's what God wants for us. God is our father who knows what we need. Why don't we just come to him as a child and just ask? Russell Moore says it well with this insightful comment about all three temptations, but I'll say it here. He says this, Satan in all three temptations is assuming the role of a father, first in provision, then in protection, and now in granting of an inheritance. Satan didn't just want to be Jesus' Lord. He wanted to be his father. 
and he would like to be your father as well. But Jesus shows us that he will place his trust alone in his heavenly father, and he encourages us to do the same. He will say later in Matthew chapter 7, who among you, if your son asks you for bread, would give him a stone, or asks you for a fish, would give him a snake instead? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your heavenly father give good gifts to everyone who asks him? Jesus places his trust right there. Temptation number one was about trusting God for food. Temptation number two is about trusting God for his protection, which leads us to temptation number three. But before I get there, let me just make a side comment. There is another weapon that we need in this fight, and it is the weapon of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We need other Believers, we cannot fight this battle alone. We are not meant to. The enemy wants you to be isolated because you, you are more easy, it's easier to pick you off that way. You need, in, in a, a war, a platoon. You need a band of brothers. You need a band of sisters to fight this battle with you, to fight together. We in the community of Christ need this. I know I need this. I am so prone to put a little asterisk next to my sins because I would like to approve of them, and I need my brother to come tell me, hey, Dave, you got some self-deception about that. I need a mirror in my life to show me the word of God. We need each other to confess our sins to one another, to bear each other's burdens, and to pray for one another. That's what the body of Christ is all about. Temptation number three. The third one I think is a really big deal, actually, in my opinion. This one's kind of like the main thing. This is like the main event. Temptation number three, verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. I personally love a good view. Whenever we're on vacation, I always say, take me to the top. I am a sucker for some restaurant at the top of the mountain, at the top of the hill. I want to go to the top of the building. I want to see a good view. I love a good view. Can you imagine this view as as they go somewhere in the spiritual realm where they can see all of the kingdoms of the world. And Satan takes him to this place and says to the Son of God, I know why you're here. All of this. You're here for the same reason all these other sons of Adam are here. You're here to see what's in it for you. Did you notice the word self in front of all three temptations today? It is all about the self. And the devil says, if you want all of this, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. And the third temptation is clear. It is the temptation for self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. Why is it that powerful people can become so unethical and so immoral? Why is there such a draw towards scandal and a pull towards greed and, and just extravagant indulgence with the powerful people? Why is it that power generally doesn't make people better? Do you ever wonder that? What is it about us? Now, I realize this applies to so much more than just the powerful people, but it's just obvious in that instance. It's all of us, though. Andy Stanley says it this way. Uh, temptation is always an invitation to embrace self-interest. Temptation is always an invitation to embrace self-interest. Th this is what happened in Genesis 3. You will be like God. It's pride. I love that movie, 
my big fat Greek wedding. Anybody seen that before? A few of you? You remember that character in the movie? He's the father figure, the grandfather figure. And he has this thing because he's Greek and he always says, give me a word, any word, and I'll show you how the root of that word comes from the Greek. Remember that guy? And then somehow he like traces every English word back to the Greek in sort of a cockamamie way. Here's what the scriptures tell us. <clears throat> give me a sin, any sin, and I'll show you how the root of that sin comes from pride. See, this, this is why people in your life around you, some of them, they can't take criticism. They cannot stand to be corrected. They want to be exalted. Why can't you think I'm awesome all the time? This is why people in your life are consumed with envy. They can't stand for somebody else to get something that they want. They want to be exalted. This is why people in Sunday school class only speak up not so much to love and bless others, but to show off to the other class how much they know about that passage. It's the old temptation of self-exaltation. And it's not just counterproductive. It's satanic. It's the desire to make myself great instead of living to glorify God and love others. It's the sin that's always crouching at our door. It's the desire to be magnified, not crucified. This is why Jesus and Christianity is so unique and stands out. It's so compelling because Jesus comes with this kingdom and it's like totally upside down, everything about it. Instead of self-exaltation and glory, it's all about humility and meekness and love for others and servanthood. And Jesus taught us that power is not primarily given to you for the powerful and that you know, wealth is not primarily given for the wealthy and influence is not primarily given for those who are influential. It's a stewardship. It, it, it's a test. Will you leverage what you have for yourself or for others? Wealth is a test. Very few people pass the wealth test. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I kind of at least like to sign up for the test. If you could just sign me up for the test, that would be kind of fun just to see how I would do, right? That's what you're thinking. But here's the truth. We live in the wealthiest nation ever. We're already taking that test. How are we doing so Satan comes to Jesus and he says, what kind of person wouldn't leverage what they're entitled to for themselves? Is there such a thing as a king in a kingdom who would lay down his life for others? No, it just doesn't work that way. But Jesus says, watch this. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God. And serve him only. And then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. What a savior. Jesus, early on, was offered what so many of us want. But our captain did not come to exalt himself. He came to humble himself. He came not to be magnified, to be crucified. And he came to take away the sins of the world. In other words, he did not come down to lord over. He came to get up under our burden. And introduce us as a result of this brand new definition of greatness. And he will tell us later on in Matthew's gospel, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve. And Jesus says, I know this is the way the world works. I know this is all you know, and I know this is all that you've ever seen, but I have come to show you something brand new. A kingdom like you've never seen before, and he invites you and me to follow him, and the challenge for us today is that. We have a choice. Will we leverage what we have for ourselves, or will we leverage what we have for the good of others and the glory of God? That's the choice. Will we leverage what we have for ourselves, or will we leverage what we have for the good of others and for the glory of God? That's the choice. And don't you know that every great person you've ever looked up to, every great person who has ever lived knew about this? When you live just for you, you actually get smaller and smaller, not bigger and bigger. You are just not enough to live for. It's just not much of a life. But, however, isn't it true that the people in your life that you admire the most, isn't it true that people that have had the biggest impact on you have leveraged what they had for the good of others and for the glory of God? And the reason why there's millions and even billions of people this morning gathered to worship around King Jesus is because he lived for a principle that outlasted him and taught others to do the same. And then he challenges us to live that way too. After all, he will say later in Matthew, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Uh, Toby Mack and Mandisa wrote a song about this called Lose My Soul. And there's this refrain in the middle of the song where they Sing it this way, how do I sense the tide that's rising, desensitizing me from living in light of eternity? That's the American culture right there, isn't it? Jesus taught that his kingdom would come at the proper time, and we should live in light of that day, in light of eternity. And right now, our power should be leveraged for the powerless, and our wealth should be leveraged for the wealthless, and our influence should be leveraged for those with no influence at all and those on the margins. That's what our king does. And now we are his followers, and in this war, we're almost kind of like a counterinsurgency on mission to show the world what greatness really is. May his kingdom come. Can I just make one more observation? Do you realize what Satan was willing to give up in this third temptation? If Jesus would just worship him, Satan, although his lease is not eternal on this world, is the prince of the power of the air, and he was willing to give up his entire empire just to put a stop to Jesus, and the more I read the Gospel of Matthew, the more I'm convinced of this one particular fact. Jesus' main goal in the Gospel of Matthew was not to put Jesus on the cross. It was to keep Jesus off the cross. Because Satan only has these two weapons, accusation and condemnation, and he knows the Gospel will render him completely powerless. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Russell Moore says it well. He says this, Jesus refused to exchange the end time exaltation by the Father for a right now exaltation of a snake. So to sum up today, here's what we've said. There's a shark in the water. There's a fin in your life. 
he comes primarily with three distinct temptations. There is a temptation for self-gratification. We want satisfaction apart from godly resources. There's a temptation for self-protection. We want perfect security without any risk at all. And there's a temptation for self-exaltation. We want significance without suffering. And here, the Son of God shows us how to fight. We are to find our appetites filled in God alone. Secondly, we are to find our need for protection by placing our trust in our Father. And third, we are to find our greatest sense of significance by serving others. And with that, our Savior has led the way. With that, our Savior has had the victory. And with that, our Savior has overcome. In fact, there's a song about that that the band is going to play for us in just a moment. And as they come, let me just share a verse of good news. Because although we live in a spiritual war today, there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, where that battle will be over. And Revelation chapter 12 ends with this great hope. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now Salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they have not loved their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May his kingdom come. Amen.